welcome to the Fertility Conversations podcast. The goal of this podcast is to create more awareness about infertility and to provide support to people trying to conceive. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you will be encouraged. And now, here is your host, Ola. Welcome, everyone. This session is uh, a bonus episode, which is a recording from the Zoom call that was on October 25th, 2020. The session was the first one of its kind, and it was focused on pregnancy and infant loss awareness support uh, session where people got to uh, log in and listen to our speakers and also have their questions answered. So thank you so much for listening. She is from Heart of Mama Nurture, and uh, her name is Samala Kriman. Um, she is a wife and the mother of four beautiful children, a qualified social worker, and um, she has founded Mama and the Heart of Mama Nurture. She is also an internationally accredited birth bereavement and adoption doula with um, Stillbirth Day University. Um, Samala is a trained traumatic incident reduction therapist and offers counseling to mothers going through the traumatic and heartbreaking journey of grief. She also offers birth debriefing for any mother who has uh, experienced a traumatic birth. In addition, uh, she's a member of Patch SA. Um, mm -hmm. And this afternoon, we are so blessed to have Samala with us uh, to talk to us about um, what we all go through. What then, what do we do then when um, we have lost the pregnancy? Um, do we grieve? Do we write letters? What do you say to your, you know, to your, to your little children if you already have children? Um, what then? So thank you very much, Samala, for joining us. Thank you for coming back, Dr. Q. Uh, you are noted. We just moved uh, to um, our next speaker, Samala, but we will come back to you um, to, end, to finish off um, your presentation and entertain questions. Samala, over to you. Thank you very, very much. It's just been so amazing to listen to everyone talk today. Um, I just feel like I just I feel like I've nodded my head over and over and over <laughs> because you're all just saying and speaking my language and my heart. So it's just such it's so amazing to be with all of you today. I think before I move on to what Karaba was saying, I actually want to go back a little bit and just share. I think it's kind of important to hear some of the mommy's stories that I've journeyed with because it kind of helps. How do we move forward from there? So. I'm a social worker, as I mentioned, I was, I'm a mother of four, and it was actually the birth of our fourth child that um, led me to decide to become a hypnobirthing practitioner and to be a birth doula. Um, I'm gonna to touch on what a doula is because not everybody knows, um, but a doula is a woman who serves, and basically she steps into the role of emotional and physical support during pregnancy, labor, and birth, um, she helps guide the couple. She's not a midwife, so she's not medically trained, but she's trained in natural, like natural pain relief methods and the emotional side of sorts, um, guiding a couple and supporting them during actual labor and afterwards. 
So that's what I, I train to do. And, um, and then my, one of my very first clients had a stillbirth at 39 weeks. Sure. And I just remember, I mean, I was in deep shock. I could only begin to imagine what this mother was going through. And I think my social work background kind of kicked in. And I was just like, this mommy is going to need so much support. And she was actually birthing with midwives. She had a wonderful gynae as backup. So I knew at the birth she was going to get a lot of support. But it was this question of, but what happens from here? You know, this is a almost full-term baby. There's hospital bags packed, filled with clothing for this little boy. There's a nursery set up. There's clothes for him. There's a sibling waiting to meet his brother. You know, how does this mommy move forward? Um, and so I was just like, okay, first thing that came to my mind was a support group, getting her to meet with other women who've had a similar experience and engaging with them is the way to go. And I was horrified. I'm in Pretoria in South Africa. Um, I started searching. I mean, we're quite a big city. I thought it would be quite easy to find support. And I was just shocked to see how little support was available specifically for pregnancy and baby loss. You know, there were general grief groups but that was people who had lost children at any age, through any circumstance. And my heart just told me, this is different. And we need a specific support group for these moms. And I found one group in Johannesburg, but I just thought, how do I ask this mom in her grief-stricken state to travel by herself at night to Joburg? And so I actually decided I'm going to start a support group. I'm a social worker. I can do this. And I very quickly started to just, in my immediate circle, find out there was a lot of women who had experienced loss. And so I started a support group, and that first meeting was just incredible. You know, this, I think that creation of a safe space where mommies could come together and just talk. You know, Kezia, what you were saying, just speak about my baby and how I feel without people going, oh, okay, I'm going to go make tea, you know, just totally avoiding their emotions because of their discomfort. So they just sat and opened up and started to just talk. And we actually had a, an array of mommies, some with early losses, some with later losses, and they showed such compassion towards one another. And it was incredibly beautiful and meaningful and I feel like so much of my work was born from this group of women hearing their stories and traveling with them and the the thing that struck me as a social worker working with these mommies was the added trauma that was already happening to them in already a traumatic situation and Kezia I agree with you again that I think so few people realize the trauma that is associated with loss and, and it's not acknowledged and they just keep quiet. All these comments about your one in four, you know, oh, at least, you know, you can fall pregnant. You can always try again. You should actually be happy because there's probably something wrong with the baby, you know, and even if it's a later loss, it's like, well, at least you have children or it's, 
you know, well, at least you didn't get to like have him for a year or two and then he passed. That would have been so much worse. So all these things that were said to these moms and it did not bring comfort. All it brought was shame for sharing their stories, shame for having feelings at all, shame for not quickly moving through all these, you know, phases of grief and getting on with life. And, um, and, and then it was for me, this trauma that was actually happening at their births. So they started to share um, how the nursing staff, I think just because they're not trained, weren't making eye contact with them. And so they were feeling so isolated, how often even their own gynees didn't know how to handle it. So just suddenly would walk past them and not look at them and just, you know, deal with the medication that now needed to be given. Um, and unfortunately in South Africa, and I'm not sure if it's like this um, in other parts of Africa, but we have this law that states babies born pre-26 weeks are actually considered med medical waste. And so parents don't have access to those little babies' bodies and to have ashes or to bury them. And the impact that this was having on mommies and dads grieving because you can't have a memorial, you don't have ashes, you have nothing, but you had a baby. Um, and often these little babies, because they were, and I hope I don't um, trigger some mommies here today, but it's just to share the, the depth of trauma that is happening in our hospitals is that, you know, some of these mommies weren't allowed to hold their babies, weren't allowed to see their babies. They had no memory making, no photographs. The nurse would just take them out or worse, put their baby in a kidney dish in front of them. There was no acknowledgement of their babies as a little person. This is my baby that you are treating as medical waste. Um, and so as I listened to these stories and just seeing how traumatized these mommies were after going through already a trauma, um, I decided there must be a way that we can support these mommies during these births. And so I actually found a course overseas. I trained overseas as a stillbirth doula. Um, but then once I was practicing in South Africa, because our laws are different, because we're a third world country, we don't have the same resources, etc. I realized we actually needed a South African training. And so I started to train bereavement facilitators. And the reason we call them facilitators is because we do a lot more than, than just a, a bereavement doula. Because we're facilitating all the processes that are going to be part of this couple's journey now. And so we actually can go in and be present at the births. And we, before the time, if we're able to be with a couple before the time, we draw up a birth plan because you're still birthing your baby. And how can we do that in a way that is going to be helpful for your healing journey? How can we do that that's going to um, help you grieve better? And so we make sure that oh, we include, you know, is there a special blanket you want your baby wrapped in? Is there a gift you want to give your baby? Is there a special ceremony that you want to put in place, a religious ceremony? How do you want to say goodbye to your baby? Do you want to hold your baby? Do you want 
your, if they're siblings, do you want them to view their brother or sister? What are the benefits? What are the, the negatives of that? Um, are there family members who want to come and see and say their goodbyes? And we do memory making. We make sure there's footprints, handprints, photographs, because the number one regret that I heard in, these, in this support group was the lack of photos. So they either had one photo that a nurse thought to just take or somebody in the family took one picture and that is all they have. And they hold onto that photo with all their hearts. Um, and so the, the regret is, I wish I had more photos. Um, and so we really just guide them. Our heart as a bereavement facilitators to come alongside these families and guide them so that we minimize the trauma, we can't take it away, but we can minimize and to reduce the regrets that they have. So that when they move into the healing and grieving journey, they have fewer regrets that they've got to work through and less trauma that they've got to deal with. And so we support in early losses because in early loss, I think again, Kizia, I had to like just agree with so much of what you were saying, is that it's so minimized in our culture. It's just so mommies don't even feel they have the right to grieve. And so we really encourage these moms to name their baby because it's about acknowledgement. Acknowledge your baby existed. Yes, it may have been eight weeks or nine weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks, but they existed. And you had hopes, you had dreams. When we pee on that stick and we see those two pink lines, what do we do? We're like decorating the room in our mind. We're imagining the first beach holiday. We're imagining Christmas. It's all those things that mommies have to grieve. We have to give space to them to grieve that, those hopes and those dreams and acknowledge their feelings around this loss because they try to shove it down. And then in the next pregnancy, the anxiety is massive because we've got unresolved emotions. Um, so we encourage mommies to name baby. And we've had in our support group, we have a whole lighting ceremony. So we're also huge on creating ceremonies and rituals to honor because that brings healing. And they have to light the, a candle in honor of each and every baby. So if you've had five losses, every single baby gets their own candle and you're encouraged to name each baby. And often I say to moms, you know, we often had a gut feel that this was a boy or a girl, trust it and name according to that. If you didn't, that's okay. Then name according to a, the stars or a beautiful gemstone. Or we had one mommy who named her baby popcorn because popcorn was the size of a popcorn when they did the scan and was alive the last time they saw him. And so we all spoke about popcorn or bean. It doesn't matter what the name is. It is about the act of naming and the act of acknowledging, honoring, and remembering. And so we guide, even in early losses, we can actually come and be with the mom if she's miscarrying at home and guide her through that process. 
We help her also create uh, rituals around saying goodbye. And then when it comes to the births, um, if baby has died in utero and they're still having to birth, we can come alongside and be present at the birth and guide the whole process afterwards in terms of viewing. Um, and then if it's a sudden loss, so often we arrive there after the, the birth has taken place, mom and dad might not have even seen baby yet. We help guide them. It's a very scary process. It's a very overwhelming process. And having somebody with you who's going to take it step by step and understands trauma and so how to work with you whilst you're sitting in trauma is incredibly helpful because you cannot think of everything that needs to happen now. You cannot make decisions right now. You, don't, you never imagined you were maybe going to have to phone a funeral home. So we help guide that whole process. And the same if um, baby is found to have an anomaly and mom and dad now need to decide, do we end this pregnancy or do we carry to term and offer palliative care until baby does pass? And so we, again, sit with them, create the birth plan, help put in place whatever is needed. And the whole heart behind that is to try and reduce the trauma. So that when mom and dad move on to the grieving and healing journey, there's less baggage, less trauma, less hurt, less overwhelm that is now going with them. And so we then also help refer to the right kind of counsellors because sadly not all counsellors actually understand baby loss or pregnancy loss and very often are the very ones who say, well, here's the five stages of grief. You're in this stage, you've only got these two left and then you're going to be done and you can go get pregnant again. So you really want to make sure that these mommies are going to supportive counsellors, people who understand the depth of loss and grief that is experienced by moms that have experienced loss and, um, and then supporting them in that grieving journey. And so I also, as a social worker, work with a lot of the couples um, after the loss. And I think it's, I'm going to actually repeat so much of what you said, Kezia. I just loved your talk because we do such similar work and it is just so beautiful and amazing. So I definitely want to connect with you afterwards. But um, it's really, you know what, I think the biggest thing to do is just to create space and to say, you are a, you may grieve, you're allowed to grieve and you should. And there is no time span to do that in. It is your process and it is unique to you. And men and women generally grieve slightly differently. And so we need to create space within the coupleship that, and grace for one another that as we grieve, we're going to do it differently. And I'm not going to judge you because you cried less than me. So do you, did you love baby less than I did? You know, you, you've got to give space. Um, one husband, the way he grieved is he went running. And he's written the most amazing book on his grief journey. And he said in front of his wife, he was trying to be strong for her because he felt he had to be strong and protective. But when he went running, He's described in his book that he, the lines down here deepened because as he ran, he cried and those tears could come 
in a safe space whilst he was running. And he now runs in honor of his son in all these marathons across the country. But that was his way of grieving. Where very often mommies do need a more talkative way. So having one-on-one -on -one counseling, support groups, safe circles of friends where they are allowed to speak about their babies. They need that space and we've got to create that space for them. And I think the understanding that um, you are grieving because so many mothers don't even realize they're grieving. They get up, they, like Natalie said, you get up and you go to work and you put on your face and you do your job and you shove it down, but it sits, it's in your body, it's in your emotions and it's going to come out somewhere. It has to, it has to. And I see it with trauma. We have to release that trauma emotionally as well as physically because we're all connected. Our bodies are connected to our heart and our soul. And so we have to release that trauma in every area. And so to guide, um, to go through that process of being um, able to release emotionally, work with your emotions, I loved what you said again, Kezia, of sitting with them and just saying, this is what I feel today and it's okay. It's okay. And allow it. Let it wash over you because it will pass. But when we, when we store it and we suppress it, we actually lock it in. We lock it into our bodies and we lock it in there and it has to keep coming up to be released. And so actually allowing those emotions is so, so important to the healing journey. And then I really encourage couples and often especially the mommy because she's been through, very often, she's been through a birth. Even an early loss is a birth. Um, and so there's been possibly trauma in the body. And so to find um, body workers that can help you release the trauma that sits in the body so that when the next pregnancy comes, um, I mean, I know one mommy, for example, who she lost twins. Um, one passed away in utero and the other passed away in neonatal ICU. And she really worked with her grief journey. She worked hard. She really on an emotional level. But when she felt pregnant with her next baby and she went for the birth, they wheeled her into the same theater where the twins had been born. And she said when they wheeled her in and she looked at those lights, her body had a reaction and she started to shake uncontrollably that the, the, you know, the um, anesthetic wouldn't work to the point that they had to do a general, they had to put it under general anesthetic to do the cesarean. And that's the autonomic nervous system reacting to a trigger of the past trauma. And why it's so important that as mommies have experienced loss, that we release emotionally, we honor our emotions, we honor our babies, we acknowledge them, but we also need to look at the elements of releasing trauma physiologically because we have an autonomic nervous system that reacts and remembers and we've got to work with those triggers as well. And so I feel like that's such an important part to bring into 
um, your healing journey is also what is going to, what's happening in my body? How do I learn to work with my autonomic nervous system when it is triggered? Um, when anxiety does come because we know in subsequent pregnancies, it does. Um, you know, even if you've really journeyed well and you've grieved well, it's natural, it's normal. But how do I then make sure that I don't have autonomic nervous system reactions that I don't know how to cope with? And so to learn and bring those things into the grieving process as well. So um, I just feel like that's such an important element to all of this as well. Karaba, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to ask or want me to touch on. Again, I feel like I could talk about this all day. <laughs> but if there's anything else you'd like me to touch on. Thank you, Samala. I think you you touched on um, one of my questions uh, that I usually ask about uh, pregnancy losses, the involvement of uh, daddies in the whole process, how they process, you know, grief. Uh, because as I said earlier, we tend to sort of keep them in the back room um, as if it's a journey that the woman goes through alone. Um, we will entertain questions just now. I see there's one directed to you. Um, just at this moment, I would like us to, um, Ola, do you think we should uh, take in Samala's questions first and then uh, move over to Dr. Yeah. Q? Yeah, that sounds right. perfect. Cool. And then I have others right. for Keza, sorry, Keza leader as well. All right, you can, you can take over and um, give them the questions. Okay, thank you so much everyone for your time and for such wonderful information. We really, really appreciate it and we've all learned so much. So I'm going to start off with Samala. So actually Natalie was making a comment and saying that she totally agrees with you that the point you noted out about the autonomic nervous system reactions that recently she bought um, a pregnancy test in her failed cycle and she start, physically started shaking. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that's what we don't actually always realize with trauma. Um, our brain, you know, at the time of a trauma, it's logging certain things. And so later on, a smell can trigger the trauma. Something you see triggers it, something you hear. Um, and so we've got to actually unlock those because otherwise you're going to continuously be triggered. Um, and so we need to release that. So I agree, Natalie, and understand. Thank you so much. And Dr. Q, are you there? Okay, maybe she's not. So I'm gonna go to, uh, I'm gonna ask Casey now. I have someone actually asking, you spoke about this, uh, but then she said that she recently had a loss and her spouse doesn't wanna talk about it, um, but she feels the need to talk and they keep fighting because she complains that she doesn't feel that he's acknowledging the loss or she doesn't feel like he actually misses the baby like she does. So they keep getting into fights. So she's wondering if there was a way to try to get him to understand her need to speak about it. Yeah, it's really difficult. I think we both said and Samara said men deal with it in different ways. Men tend to not want to talk. Um, and so sometimes it's like some, we might have to find 
that we get him support on his own and then we get our own support. And one thing I always say to women that come to me is you have to fill your own cup first. So you have to support yourself first before you can support your partner. Um, so make sure that you have everything that you need, um, whether that's, you know, you've spoken about what you've gone through uh, and then you can help him. Um, but, you know, it's that, that, that analogy that we have about putting on your oxygen mask before you can put on someone else's. And it's the exact same thing that, you know, so I would advise, I don't know who, who asked the question sorry I, I missed the name but um you know get yourself you know the support that you need really figure out what it is that you need go and get that and then it's just with men we have to kind of come at it from a different way you can't come up with, with a sledgehammer because they run a mile um so we just gotta say like you know babe like maybe you should go and talk to someone you know I've got this you know, go and find a counsellor for him or, you know, um, and just say, I really think it's really important and you haven't got to talk to me. Maybe sometimes we have to, even though we are in a relationship and we're in a partnership, is understanding that actually I might not be the best person to support and help him. And he needs to find out what he needs. And it's just about supporting him through that. And I don't think it's that he doesn't care, just... Sometimes we don't have the language. You know, we grow up not really speaking about our emotions and men are even worse. You know, men are told from a very young age, man up, boys don't cry, things like that. And so they don't always have the language that we have to put our feelings into words. And so it's just allowing them and there's no judgment. Sometimes the way to get into the conversation is just to say, you know, I feel this and I'm wondering what you feel about that and just if he wants to engage in the conversation he will and if he doesn't it's okay but sometimes we have to be the model and say things like so this is how I feel I'm wondering how you feel about that and see if he will engage with you and again if you really feel like he really does need more support beyond than what you can help then it's just you know, encouraging him to do so, to go and talk to someone. So I hope that helps. Yes, sounds perfect. Thank you so much. And I have another question for you. Uh, and again, I think you spoke about this a little bit. She said that uh, she finds it very hard to go to baby showers and family gatherings because of the triggers and people always asking questions, especially family members and her uh, in-laws, uh, husband's uh, family. So how's the best for her to manage emotions because she knows that she cannot avoid all, all of the events. She can't avoid going to all of them. But then when she goes, people keep asking her questions that bother her. Yeah. And this comes up a lot for a lot of women that, uh, you know, if you can't avoid, I, my first thing is, can you avoid it? Can you really not go? That would be my thing to ask. Then it's always, I kind of say, have an escape plan. It sounds really, you know, excessive but you know if you know that like I can't take this anymore I've gotten to a point where actually I'm just too upset and this isn't the place where I need to um break down right now then you know make your excuses and don't feel guilty about that just kind of say 
oh you know what I, I really need to go now or whatever it is but I always think have your escape plan in mind like what is it I'm going to say what am I comfortable with saying I think also another way is to sometimes what happens is our um our stress response gets kicked in you know that autonomic nervous response that Samala was talking about um and then our cortisol is raised our adrenaline gets spiked um and what will happen is we tend not to breathe so we get really like shallow breath and we kind of feel overwhelmed by everything and by what what's going on so allow yourself five minutes you know go to the toilet shut the door and just do that deep breathing and what the deep breathing does when we take a really deep breath in through the nose we can take it right down into like our belly you know that deep breath then out through the mouth we'll do that at least three times and what we're doing is we're sending a signal to the brain that says it's okay we're okay we're safe there's no immediate threat to life here where we can cope with this situation and so give yourself it's always about giving yourself time in whatever way you need and five minutes might be or you know 10 minutes might be all you need to just calm yourself down and I think when you're dealing with people's comments sometimes we know who are going to be at these events so really have it like oh I know that person's going to be there if they come and ask me something you know just prepare yourself like what could I give as a response that could shut them down quite quickly oh yeah I'm fine or oh yeah you know whatever it is or you know or actually I just don't want to talk about this right now you know give yourself that permission to say I don't want to talk to you and this isn't the place so please don't ask me you know it's okay to do that um I think a lot of the time we feel like we have to go and join and go in that conversation but it's like I'm just going to shut that down because nah it's not happening especially not with you or, you know, if people come out and they, they are answering insensitive things, like just say, again, just like, really thank you for, you know, thinking about me or thank you for inquiring, but, you know, I just don't want to talk about that right now. And, you know, just do whatever it is is right for you. So give yourself time, give yourself space. And there's always a pause. So really think, like, if someone says something and you're like, oh, didn't like that just you don't have to react straight away and be like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm at a baby shower I've got to be nice like just there's a pause where you go wait hold on I didn't like that how am I going to respond and find your Rolodex of responses that you're you know that you're okay with saying and if it's not a place to be rude then you know find that polite no I'm not going to talk about this um Everything's just about, I always think with these kinds of events, it's about how can I prepare myself in advance to deal with everything that I'm going to feel? And give yourself permission to not only feel what you feel, but to respond in whatever way is right for you. hope that helps. Yes, thank you so much. And I'm going to move on now to Dr. Q. I have quite a few questions here for you. Um, so I'm going to read the first one on here. It's in the chat. Uh, she said that she had four miscarriages all at 19 weeks due to infections and that she finds it very puzzling why she cannot go past the 19 weeks. The doctor always says the water break, her water breaks too early due to infections. I did not, they're not really sure where the infections are coming from. 
so she's wondering, is it possible to do a vaginal swab the next pregnancy and to try to treat the infections as they come? And just to add to that, all the losses, she mentioned that the baby, the babies didn't die, but the, her water broke each time and that she had to give birth early to the baby and the babies didn't make it. Okay, um, that's a very sad occurrence. Uh, my uh, empathy goes towards her. And um, again, at 19 weeks. So those are second trimester losses. And as I said, that uh, in second trimester, there's what we call cervical incompetence as well where um, then either it depends how it actually happened with her. If after the water broke, um, did she then go into spontaneous labor, the baby was delivered on its own, or was the baby still stuck inside and they still had to give her medication to eventually abort the pregnancy. So if the baby uh, came out spontaneously, it most likely sounds like a cervical incompetence and she may be needing a, a stitch, which we call McDonald or Shirodka stitch, but it's a cervical stitch. And if it's an infection, you know, we need to treat, we need to diagnose, we need to know what infection is it. So yes, a vaginal swab um, can be done. And um, also, again, it depends uh, um, where exactly is the infection. Is it a, a, an infection throughout the whole body? It's a systemic infection. We can do blood cultures. Uh, I mentioned the torch screen, uh, rubellas and um, syphilis and all those things. So we need to diagnose the infection and treat that infection. And then um, uh, also get that vaginal swab uh, done to see and um, um, pick up or detect any uh, abnormalities and detect the type of bug that is in there and treat accordingly. So it's a really a sad occurrence that we can, one can have an infection uh, multiple times and we still um, don't know what exactly is it because there's more than a hundred types of infections and we need to treat exactly what the cause is. Because if we treat generally, then we may be missing the actual, uh, actual cause. And oh, again, most infections though, I must say, they do not, they are not mostly associated with recurrence in pregnancy loss because then your body starts making antibodies the first time around that you are exposed to that bug. And the second time around, mostly your body has antibodies against that bug already. So we really need to get to the real cause of what exactly was going on and the whole history, and then one can take it from there. Thank you. I'm gonna quickly move on to the next one. Uh, how does endometric plate displacement affect conception? How does? I'm, I can't see Endo that one on the chat, sorry. Okay, endometric plate, plate displacement. Um, I wish I could read it myself. I don't know if it's the pronunciation. I'm gonna send it to you now. I'm gonna send it to you privately. Uh, but before uh, that, I'll move on to the next one, saying mm -hmm. what, is a, what is the mis miscarriage, uh, the symptoms, she suspects that she had one and ended up in the hospital uh, when she started her IVF journey, but it was never confirmed. So she'd like to know 
what are the symptoms and what is a missed miscarriage? Uh, a, a missed miscarriage, I, I, um, okay. The, the question is a bit ambiguous because I'm, I'm picking up something else when she says missed, she wants to know about a missed miscarriage, but then she says it was not really confirmed. So yes. it may not have been a missed miscarriage, but I will answer her question as well. Uh, a missed miscarriage means that the body actually missed it. That's, that's, that's what it, it actually means. So the miscarriage happened, the heartbeat stopped, but the body missed it and it had not yet aborted the pregnancy. So that's why it's called a missed miscarriage. So when we diagnose it, it's when a woman maybe comes in um, expecting us to confirm a pregnancy or saying there's brownish discharge or something like that, where then on sonar, so a missed miscarriage can only be diagnosed by ultrasound. If there's no ultrasound done, we cannot diagnose a missed miscarriage. So an ultrasound then shows that there is a fetus or a fetal hole and the fetus does not have a heartbeat. So the pregnancy is still in the uterus but there is no active fetal heart activity. So we call that a missed miscarriage. I don't know, I hope it actually answers her question. And the part of it um, not being really confirmed, maybe it, if it was a missed miscarriage, then the doctor may have done a sonar, confirmed that there's no heartbeats, but maybe not communicated it fully to her. But if she was told that there's no heartbeat, then that is correct to say it is a missed miscarriage. Thank you, doctor. I sent you that information, uh, the other question privately, so you can check when you get a chance. Oh, okay, I, um, I, I see. Okay, um, look, the endometrium is, the, is what is called the li lining of the womb. So mostly there's a lot of things that can actually affect the lining of the womb and that is where implantation actually uh, takes place. So it depends on, um, mostly she may be talking about uh, a pregnancy attempt that was through um, IVF, where then you find that there is no proper communication between the embryo that is uh, uh, transferred and the endometrium that is supposed to have a crosstalk with the embryo and allow for uh, implantation. So this um, we confirm um, if, it's, if, if it's a time uh, pregnancy during IVF, it's mainly about, uh, about um, checking the main um, implantation window uh, during the cycle, making sure that the lining is uh, uh, thickened enough and correct size as per uh, expected measurements. And um, also there's other uh, measures of actually even including um, embryo glue for making sure that um, or increasing the chances of good implantation. Thank you so much, Doctor. Did you want to say something else? I wasn't sure. Um, I, I, because uh, it, it, it could actually be different um, uh, scenarios. And then if maybe she was uh, also uh, concerned about endometriosis, that also is um, another topic and another extensive talk, uh, topic uh, on its own, but it usually does affect uh, fertility in uh, many different ways and inflammation and all that. And that we... Uh, um, 
approach it by giving uh, hormones before the actual cycle and before the implantation itself to suppress the lining, uh, to suppress the inflammation before the whole process uh, of uh, pregnancy takes place. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. I have a few more questions. Uh, we're gonna try to take as much as possible before 5.15 because we've gone over time. Afterwards, any other questions, we can uh, always put the information on our pages on Instagram so people can get the answers. Um, so I'm going to give you two questions. It's kind of uh, linked, I think. Um, so the first one saying that is it safe to use progesterone for multiple pregnancies? And I think you noted about this before. What causes ruptured membranes before full term? Okay. Um, is it safe to use progesterone in... Uh multiple pregnancies yes it is safe there is no danger in that and it depends again as to what is the indication or what is the reason for actually using the progesterone now most people will then use it in women who have a history of preterm labor and according to a few studies it has shown that using progesterone in multiple pregnancies does uh, unfortunately does not reduce the risk of preterm labor but if it is a pregnancy where it is which results from ivf because ivf uh, hormones had been used therefore there is what is called luteal phase support where a woman does need progesterone to support the pregnancy mostly up till six or 12 weeks of the pregnancy. So there is nothing wrong with an IVF pregnancy, uh, IVF um, uh, resulting pregnancy to use progesterone, whether it's singleton or multiple. You do need the progesterone support. Thank you, doctor. And, then and the other one, yeah. What causes rupture? Uh, so rupture of membranes mostly is uh, due to infections in, in pregnancy. And um, as said, there could be multiple causes and then a vaginal swab could assist. And then when membranes rupture, the recommendation then is to take the placenta uh, for histology and to actually take the, a swab on the membranes themselves, that you swab the membranes um, and send it to the laboratory. Then accurately, they can do a microscopy and culture of the actual uh, um, organism that was growing in, the, in those membranes and caused the infection and accurate uh, antibiotics can be used to treat that infection. And then again, if it's a second trimester loss, we need to go through the full history and making sure that it, it was a rupture that was not associated with pain and a spontaneous uh, delivery, then associate that with cervical incompetence or cervical weakness. Thank you, doctor. I have a couple more questions. Uh, this next one seems a little bit more, um, it seems that you probably need to, the person needs to contact you separately, but I'll read it anyways and see if you're able to answer. Uh, she said she's planning on doing IVF sometime within the next five months. She's never been able to conceive so far and never has, so she hasn't had any losses either. Uh, she's had some checkups and was told that she has hormonal imbalance and poor ovulation and also told that she has some cysts. So she wants to be advised what are the best supplements with reference to her challenges so she can start preparing for her next IVF cycle. 
Um, okay, so from um, what she has said, it, it, it sounds a bit like uh, associated with uh, what we call polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, if maybe she was given that diagnosis. Um, the fact that she has cysts, the fact that she is not able to ovulate, and the, I, I don't know what's the last one. I was trying to actually get the question, but it's three things that she mentioned that uh, may be associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And uh, with that one, if she wants to take, if she needs to take supplements, the recommendation because of the whole abnormality of that condition is the fact that there is high insulin levels. Therefore, the recommendation of metformin, taking metformin at least three months before the pregnancy, which is a good time for her now because she has about five months, and also to take uh, supplements that have got what we call inositol, inositol or d-chiroinositol. So those supplements, there's a few of them. Um, I, maybe I can just mention a few, uh, the companies must not be upset with me. Um, there, there is Picositol, there is Insumex Q, there's Entergolins. So though they, they, there's actually a few in the market, but if she looks for supplements that can actually work, um, in feeding the ovaries and assisting with, um, normal ov ovulation. Thank you so much. And uh, the other question I have is, uh, what are the chances of having a successful IVF if you have endometriosis? Okay, so endometriosis, um, as mentioned, affects uh, fertility in, in many different ways. So it depends if it's the ovaries that are affected, is it the fallopian tubes that are now kinked due to adhesions and so on, or um, is it just inflammation? Um, uh, all round. So if it is the ovaries that are affected, then we look at what is the ovarian reserve. Maybe we find that some women have got a lot of head a lot of what we call endometriomas, uh, which is a collection of blood in the ovaries. And therefore the ovaries have been damaged by the, the blood collection itself and probably uh, multiple operations that were done on the patient, then the ovarian reserve is reduced. So those ones, then the chances of IVF success become low because the seed that they need for uh, in vitro fertilization has been reduced. But others, you find that it is actually the bridge where the baby is actually made, the fallopian tube that is affected, but the seed is actually still there. So those ones have got higher chances of success. So it really depends as to where exactly is the patient affected, but we do have good success stories um, of IVF, even in patients with uh, endometriosis. And usually with endometriosis, most patients usually then, depending on their history, it's really individualized. We put them on a long cycle on what we call a long cycle, where we first give them hormones to reduce the inflammation before we actually start with the uh, stimulation. So then that usually brings uh, at least higher success rates for IVF in endometriosis. Thank you so much, doctor. I have uh, a comment here for Samala, and I think she already answered it when she spoke. I'm not sure if Samala is there. Um, but if not, I'll go back to, I think the other questions will probably take on the off 
offline on uh, Instagram just so to be able to, oh, Samala, okay, hello. So I had someone mention the fact that uh, I know you spoke already about how to honor our babies that have been lost. She noted that in her culture in Ghana, uh, people don't want to speak about baby loss and tell her to just focus on getting pregnant again. However, she would like to find ways to acknowledge her baby's loss. So I'm not sure if she wasn't, was there when you spoke or not, but that was the question. Sure, so I mean, what I always encourage couples to do, and I think Kezia also mentioned that, is to find ways for, that work for you to honor your baby. And it, um, it can be as planting um, a tree in honor of your baby. It can be writing a letter to your baby. It can be um, lighting a candle and saying what it is that you hoped and imagined your life would be with that child. Um, so it's to try to find that personal way that works for you and fits for you. And I think it is so unique to each and every person, but it's, it's about the actually um, finding something and doing that, naming your baby, um, what we do with some of the couples, we actually have uh, beautiful seeded hearts with forget-me-not seeds. And so they can actually plant forget-me-not seeds for their baby. I had one father who he really felt like he said, I don't know how to grieve. I don't know what I must do. So I said to him, well, what do you enjoy doing? And he said, I love gardening. So I said to him, okay, well, how can we bring that into your grieving process? Make a garden, a section of your garden in honor of your baby. Go walk through the nursery and say, ask, what did I think you were going to be like? I thought you were going to be bubbly. So what color represents bubbly for you? Yellow. Go choose what flowers. Was it more of a rose? Was it a bright colored big flower? You know, what? Choose then things, um, plants and flowers that fit with what you felt your baby was going to be. Do you want water in that garden? Do you want a bench in that garden? And so that when you're missing your baby, you can go sit there. You can write. You can journal. You can remember. So it's, it really is unique to each and every person. Um, but it's trying to find those ways that fit for you. I've had other families who decided they got their grandfather to um, make a wooden bench and um, in honor of their baby and they put it on the family farm and it was a place where they could go and sit and remember and they engraved baby's name on that bench. So it really is unique to each family, to each couple and again I often encourage couples to find their unique way um, of doing that. I hope that helps give yes, some ideas. Thank you so much, Samala. Thank you so much, Dr. Q and Kizaya. Uh, you guys have really been, it's been such an informative and insightful session. I'm gonna pass it on now back to Carabo so we can wrap it up. And of course, we do wanna make sure that you all know how to contact all the speakers if you wanna to speak to them later. Um, so I'm going to put that information as well in the uh, chat, or if you check on our Instagram accounts later, you'll also have access to uh, that information. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, first of all, thank you to our lovely speakers. 
um, that shared so much valuable information. This is really not time wasted. Thank you so much for availing yourself that we get to tap into your expertise um, regarding the, the this topic. And I guess we can never exhaust it, you know. Um, we can never talk about this um, long enough. There will always be something that we just need to go on and on and on. And this is how we heal. We heal through talking and getting information. So thank you so much um, for, for allowing us to tap into your knowledge. Um, we just had load shedding. Uh, welcome to South Africa. Uh, right in the middle of a presentation, a webinar, you just get lights out. But thank God for uh, the phone next to me. It's helping me a lot with the light. <laughs> um, thank you so much to all the organizations that uh, took part in this. Um, as Ola said, uh, we will post all the contacts of all our speakers on uh, all of our stories, um, if you would like to uh, get hold of them. Uh, one thing that I'd like to mention is that uh, Samala has um, uh, trainings that she, she facilitates um, and helps people to be qualified uh, bereavement facilitators. And I think this is very important uh, for us. And I think if you are a religious leader uh, you are a pastor, a, a deacon somewhere. I think it is vital that we have bereavement facilitators in our churches so that they can help, you know, um, facilitate such and help couples heal from um, their baby loss. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, if you can all unmute so we can say goodbye to one another. I'd like to hear all those voices. Thanks for joining us this week on the Fertility Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Fertility Conversations. If there are any topics you would like to have discussed, please send an email to fertilityconversations at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. Take care of yourself and do stay hopeful.